1: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and there's Jerry. And this is Stuff You Should Know, the hot and sweaty edition.
0: It is hot in here. Mm Mm-hmm. Although I know that you were talking about marathon running.
1: Yeah, I was, but it worked both ways, you
0: know? You ever had an urge to run a marathon? No. Same here.
1: Not really. Zero. Even researching this. You know, I get <laughs> kind of caught up when, when we do research. Yeah, I'm like, Same oh, here. I'm going to start growing bonsai. I'm going to grow orchids. I'm going to start, um, you know, um, clipping those little uh, those little indentations into, into currency to help the blind. I'm going like, to
0: start cleaning up crime scenes. That was another one. Yeah.
1: So that didn't happen. I felt the, the beginnings of an inkling of it and I wanted to go jog, but I, I don't want a marathon. No.
0: Well, my joke that I've been saying for about 30 years is I don't even like driving 26 miles. It's <laughs> a good one. Yeah. It's gotten a little stale. Um, yeah, I've never had the urge. I, I think it's great if people want to run marathons. Sure, yeah. But um, it is not for me. I hate running.
1: Uh, see, I like running.
0: I just... I hate it.
1: I don't have any desire to run that far th- for that long. That I sounds... like
0: walking. I like spinning. I like all kinds of great aerobic exercise.
1: Spin- uh, you mean spinning like cycling.
0: No 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 like a like a kid spinning. Like twirling. Yeah, twirling. <laughs> okay. <laughs> twirling and tumbling. <laughs> I like rolling down hills. No no no, spinning on a bike. Uh, yeah. it's all great, but I just I hate running. I hate it. Okay. Never have liked it.
1: Well then yeah, marathons probably not for you. No. But there it is for plenty of people. There's a, and it's growing in popularity. I don't know if you know this or not, but marathons are quite popular, Chuck. <laughs> I saw that in the the upcoming I believe it's in November, the um, New York Marathon. Yeah. They're expecting 50,000-plus people to run it, and that's out of, like, 100,000-plus people who are applying to be chosen to run. Wow. That's a lot of people. And then the half marathon, too, there was, I think, in 2014, four full years ago, there was something like 2 million finishers that's a lot of people running marathons and half marathons. So clearly it's popular, and that's okay with me. Like, do your thing.
0: Yeah, I've, I've, I've flirted with the idea of a 10K with our famous Peachtree Road Race. Yes. Because it's, and we'll talk about this some in the show, but it's, you know, it's a social event. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and from what I see, it's a good time to go out and run the Peachtree Road Race. And growing so, up in Atlanta, seeing everyone with those shirts on the 4th of July, yeah, I'm always like, man, I want one of those shirts one day. You can just buy one from eBay. <laughs> but uh, then I remember the running part of it, and, and then I quickly just say, no, thank you. And it's on 4th of July, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, early in the morning, so.
1: It doesn't matter. It's the 4th of July in Atlanta. It's already yeah. like 100 degrees.
0: I know. It's hot.
1: That's a crazy town.
0: But I think the idea is you get it done before like 9 a.m.
1: Yeah, that's what I understand too. But still, it's probably pretty hot. All
0: right, should we talk about history here?
1: Yeah, let's. So I think most people realize that the marathon is based on Greek history. Yeah. But there's a there's a pretty decent story to it, if you ask me.
0: Yeah, so let's go back to, to ancient Greece. Okay. Let's go to Athens. Okay. We're, we're hanging out. We're a little drunk. Sure, I'm wine. We're eating uh, delicious olives, maybe. Man, I love olives. Maybe some lamb. What else? Uh, I've <laughs> given up lamb. Yeah, I don't eat lamb either.
1: Um, let's see. We could be eating um, uh, rice-filled grape leaves. Okay. And uh, would it kill somebody to give us a little tzatziki sauce for them? I don't think so. All right, well, I'm happy
0: (laughs) All right, so we're hanging out, the the azure blue seas, the beautiful white homes on the seashore, but things are not looking good because next door, the Persians want to come in here and kill us and take our city because it's so beautiful. Yeah. And there's a lot of them.
1: There are. There's something like five to one compared to the Athenians.
0: So we're worried.
1: So... The Athenian army, like most other Greek armies, and like the Inca later would, um, employed runners who were were soldiers, but their job as a soldier was to run as a messenger from place to place as fast as they could over very long, rocky, mountainous distances.
0: Yeah, did they not use horses because of the terrain?
1: I don't know. Maybe horses hadn't made their their way down there by then.
0: All right. So, for whatever reason— they used human beings that were fleet of foot to literally run uh, messages back and forth. And mm-hmm. it was a big job because you're not just handing over a piece of paper. You, you are taking the place of a FaceTime call or a phone call And right. that you need to go back and say, well, I got to say, uh, when I gave him the message, he initially seemed interested, but then his face turned. And although he said it's okay, his face said it's not okay at all. (laughs) So (laughs) I would really be worried if I were you that his official reply isn't really on the level.
1: Yeah. And they would go, Pheidippides, you are one of the best ever. Thank you. So Pheidippides was actually the the name of the Athenian army messenger at the time of the uh, Athenians fending off the Persian invasion about 490 BCE. And um, he ran off to Sparta to, from Marathon, and he ran off to Sparta to say, Hey, Spartans, we need your help. We've got this uh, Persian invasion coming, and we need your help. And he was very famously kicked into a bottomless hole.
0: Yeah, the, the Spartans said, We have to oil our abs and, <laughs> and do some crunches. Yeah. <laughs> so no dice on the help
1: yeah they said no. And from what I understand, he he made it back and said they said, no, I have to go to sleep now for a couple of days because he made this trek about twenty five miles, about forty kilometers um f- in a day and a half,
0: yeah, but from where
1: <clears throat> from marathon, okay, I
0: don't think we pointed that out yet, did we? I did oh, okay. I said he made it from from marathon, and All right, I think we just I was missing the drum roll. oh, sorry, you ready? He was in.
1: Marathon. <laughs> that's where he started out. Yeah. Oh, I really blew it for us, didn't I? I no. didn't realize it was. See, this is proof positive that we don't coordinate before we <laughs>
0: record. I just thought it was supposed to be a big reveal. and You were like, "You run the marathon." <laughs> <laughs> it's true.
1: I'm sorry, there, Chuck. I'm All sorry, everybody. So
0: that's the big reveal. Is the name of the place was Marathon? Where? Marathon. <laughs>
1: that's right. So that's just story one. There's another story that may have happened, may not have happened. All this we should say is ancient Greek legend at, sure. as far as we know. But the um, the Athenians actually did manage to stave off the Persians. And Philippides was tasked with running from the battle, maybe that was at Marathon, back to Athens to say, don't burn the town down. The Persians have been vanquished we're all we're all good, yeah, but rather than being able to say all this, he has supposedly made it back to Athens just uh, with just enough energy left in his body to say, "Nike and <laughs> fall over and die and Nike was, of course, the goddess of victory, and victory meant the Athenians had held off the Persians don't burn down the city
0: oh, so they didn't say why are you plugging a shoe with your final breath?
1: Right. He goes, just do it.
0: <laughs> uh, and the idea, if it sounds weird, that he, that they were going to burn down the city, I think the idea was is that they thought they were going to lose, so they were going to burn their city down because they just thought it was a bygone conclusion, a foregone conclusion, and that they didn't want the Persians to come in there and like raid their city.
1: I think they were like the jealous lover type, like, oh, if you can't, if I can't have
0: you, no one gotcha. can. Gotcha. Okay. You know? All right. But they said it to their city. All right. So, flash forward in time to 1896, mm-hmm. the very first Olympic Games,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which we should probably do a show on at some point. Yeah, we will. Like the first Olympiad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, the uh, well, there was one guy in particular, uh, Michael Breel, or Breel, who proposed including an homage to this and recreate this this legendary marathon race that Pheidippides ran so many years previous. And the leader, I guess the coordinator of the games, Pierre de Cobortin, said that sounds good to me. It's speed 25 miles. We're going to call it a marathon. And go forth and run. He did.
1: It's a, and by the way, I, I took French in high school, so if you'll allow me. I think it's uh Michel Brial okay. and Pierre de Coubertin. Okay. You have to say it real snotty like. <laughs> um but they they were apparent supposedly they, they're not like they don't deserve all the credit. Robert Browning had written a poem about Pheidippides' run to Athens. Yeah. And it was pretty popular at the time, so they were probably inspired by that. But they did. They said, We're gonna redo the Olympics, we've gotta have a marathon race. Which was not exactly Chuck um accurate because the olympics had been going on for hundreds of years by the time phidippides was around.
0: Yeah, these it, are the first modern games, we should say.
1: Right, right. Um, and they went on for a couple hundred years after phidippides had come and gone. Um and at no point during this, I think maybe 500 or 700 year run of the first ancient Greek Olympics, was there anything even remotely close to a marathon as one of the races? I think the longest that they had was somewhere around a, between a 5 to a 10K run. That was far and away as far as they they ran. But these guys decided to, um, again, inspired by the Robert Browning poem, create a marathon. And a lot of people said, you're going to kill somebody.
0: Yeah, that was a thing. It was, it wasn't roundly accepted the whole 25 mile thing in 1896, a lot of people did say that it's too long, it's too hot, not a good idea.
1: Right. And they said, "To heck with you. We don't care if we kill anybody. This is the Olympics, don't you understand how big a deal that is?" And they said, "No, not yet, but we'll we'll watch and see." So they they held this Olympics and it was from the from the very um from from the very outset, the marathon was taken quite seriously. I think just because it was such a nutso thing to try that no one had ever tried before, um, the Greeks in particular, who hosted this first Olympics, they had 13 of, I think, the 17 competitors in the marathon were Greeks. And they held trials over the course, over the marathon course, to see who, who could do it and what their times were. And... Um, they came up with with some pretty good guys, two of which eventually came in first and second for those first Olympic marathons.
0: Yeah, this guy, Spiridon Louis or Louis? I don't know. He's Greek. His name's Louis? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He won. He got a a time of two hours, 28 minutes, and 50 seconds. Uh, And legend has it, and this may be, it may not even be legend, it may just be straight-up fact, that he stopped halfway through the race to have a glass of wine
1: yeah, I was thinking about that, and I'm That's like, I'll, I'll bet he was treating that like you would treat a Gatorade. He's like, I need to restore myself, so give me some wine. Maybe. The thing is, is that, that time you just said, 2 two hours, 28 minutes, and 50 seconds, mm-hmm. is insanely good. Yeah, oh, sure. And I'm sure that caught the attention of people who run marathons. They're like, what? That was the first guy back in 1896? The, the thing about the first marathon was they were straight-up 40-kilometer races. So they were about uh, 25 miles, yeah. not 26.2, hence the reason why his, his um, time was so good. But uh, it's still a really, really good time, but that extra 1.2 miles at the end can really jack your time up, uh, from what I understand.
0: Yeah, that didn't come about until uh, 1908 in London uh, when they were the hosts— and King Edward the but, 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 seventh's wife, mm-hmm. uh, Alexandra, said, and this is just so great. It was 25 miles, and she was like, "I would like for the race <laughs> to start by the palace." <laughs> and they were like, "Well, that means an extra 1.2 miles on this already dangerous race," uh-huh. and everyone rolled their eyes and were like, "All right." I, I saw that not only did she wanted
1: to start by the palace, they said, okay, that's fine. It'll be like 26 miles then. She said, well, okay, after you've officially said that, um, I want to actually to start in front of the children's nursery so they can <laughs> see the starting line. So they added another 0.2 miles because of oh. Alexandra. So and She's like, will I uh, kill
0: him?" And they're like, maybe. Maybe.
1: Oh, well, all right, but still do it. Yeah. So they, for the 1908 Olympics, it's the first time we have a 26.2 mile marathon. And it was so the children could see from the nursery. Which is kind of sweet, actually. It is pretty sweet. And then, so there have been marathons before that 1908 one. Again, the first one was those 1896 Olympics. Um, there was one in Boston held in 1897, which became the Boston Marathon. And it's been held every year since then. That's amazing. It is amazing. Um But from that point on, marathons up until, I think, 1970, they were elite events. You were an elite marathon runner. If you were in any marathon, you were there by invitation. Most of the time, your competitors were from the country that the marathon was being run in, and it was an enormous honor to be invited. Um, And that's who ran marathons. But then in 1970, a guy named Fred Lebo or LeBow, I'm not quite sure how you say his name, he said, you know what, to heck with all this snobbiness. I'm going to start a marathon for everybody. And he started a marathon that ran around Central Park in 1970 with 100 runners. And it was not only just open to everybody, it was open to women too, which was a huge deal. Um, And he started kind of the first uh, mass for the people style marathon and the new york city marathon although boston i believe it kind of been toying with this a little bit but fred Lebow really kind of blew the lid off of it and from that point on marathon started to pick up more and more in popularity especially when an american won the gold medal in the 1972 marathon at the olympics frank shorter and then of course for anybody who's seen forrest gump Um, the whole fitness craze that started around that time really gave marathon running a boost.
0: Yeah, that was, uh, like you said, 72. And I remember growing up in the 70s, I remember even knowing as a child that this was uh, a new thing sweeping the nation. (laughs) Um, Fitness, uh, fitness craze, a fitness revolution. I remember being just very aware of like, running everyone's running like they're running magazines and running clothing that's all over the place now and everyone is running and i remember just like feeling like man this everyone's making a big deal about this Mm -hmm. running thing and it was i didn't know at the time but it was because it was sort of a a new deal it It wasn't like you didn't have to be you know weigh 108 pounds uh and just be like a tiny stick of a person. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what you think of when you think of marathons. It really democratized it and uh, said, you know, if you want to lose some weight, if you want to manage your weight, if you want to just have more energy or increase your cardiovascular fitness, get out there and beat the streets and run because it's sort of the cheapest, easiest form of exercise.
1: Yeah, and and it's also the most independent, too. There's no team. There's no – you don't have to do it with anybody else. You can – there's no coordinating necessarily, although as we'll see as you get into marathoning, all that stuff really comes into play sure but at its at its core, it is running is the the um most basic type of exercise there is lo fi it really is, and I think that definitely attracted a lot of people plus um I'm not sure what kicked off that health craze, but Uh, That really, really fit in nicely with it, the idea that all you need is a pair of shoes and some really, really revealing shorts, (laughs) and you, too, could be a runner.
0: Should we take a break? Sure. Because I find myself getting excited all of a sudden. It was the short shorts. (laughs) (laughs) But wanting still to not run a marathon. Okay. All right, we'll be right back.
1: All right, dude. So we said the 70s are where the marathon boom started, but it really hit in, I think, the 90s. Um, People, like, that's that's when marathons just started popping up everywhere. By then, like, cities, major cities all have marathons. I think Berlin started their legendary one in 1980, and then London in 1981. But now you can go to just about any town, and there's a marathon there at least
0: once a year. Did you see this weird stat in here? (laughs) <laughs> Did that jump out at you? Totally. <laughs> it's, I'm just going to read it. Okay. They're trying to prove in this article how what a boom in popularity in the 90s. <laughs> and it says this, from 1991 to 1992 alone, marathon finishers increase from 9,000 to 9,200. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is that right? Yeah. Is it missing a one? Is, is it supposed I, to be 19,000? I, I don't think so. I think
1: they just are impressed by very small numbers. <laughs> There was another one that came later. It said that the percentage of runners under 20 years old (laughs) over the past 15 (laughs) years has increased from 1% to 1.8%.
0: Whoa.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's weird, man.
0: All right. Those weird stats aside, there was a boom in the 90s. Um, Running USA said that the number of runners in the largest half marathon and marathon uh, in two thousand increased by about 10,000. Oh, I'm sorry, increased uh, to 29,000 and 38,000 respectively right. in the half marathon and the marathon.
1: Yeah, that's like, um, that's that's again, that 38,000 number is now 50,000 plus for the New York City Marathon. So it, it's still growing quite quite dramatically.
0: Uh, Catherine Switzer or Switzer came along. Mm-hmm. Um, the first official uh female participant for the Boston Marathon. And,
1: and, dude, you know, she was almost thrown out mid-race when they found out that she was a woman running. Yeah. She entered as a Kay Weitzer in 1967.
0: Yeah. So she wrote a book about it uh, called Marathon Woman, where she not only talks about the fact that uh, women, like, are great at this, but mm-hmm. uh, you you can do this. You don't have to be 19 and 20 years old. You can do this into your into your 60s. Mm-hmm. And you see that. You see... Uh, people in their 40s 50s and 60s and beyond yeah just still out there pounding the streets um marathoners are interesting people like when you see them on the street you can Mm -hmm. tell the difference usually of like your average like i'm jogging for exercise and like i'm running miles and miles and miles Mm -hmm. Uh, you can see it on their face
1: You can't. um, (laughs) One eye is usually kind of like popping out more than the other. Their hair is coming out in tufts. Their knees are bleeding. That kind of stuff.
0: Here's the interesting stat for me, though. It says most long-distance runners are college-educated from 74 to 93%, um, which is interesting, and they make a couple of points that Mm. um, you're not just exercising your, your, your legs or your body, but your brain because... A lot of brain training goes into this. It's not the kind of thing you can just say, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm going to go run a marathon. Let me see how that goes. Um, With training and scheduling and just being out there running for 26 miles is a big brain exercise in and of itself.
1: Yeah, yeah, just the run itself is, but also the months and months and months of preparation and dedication and um, self-motivation and discipline like, that takes a tremendous amount of brain power that you might otherwise be, you know, <laughs> using to do... To, do I want a little Debbie coffee cake or <laughs> a Drake's coffee cake today? Why not both, you know? Should we talk about the training?
0: Sh- sure. Because training, it's not... Uh, and I'm glad they said this in this article because I was afraid they were going to be like, here's how you do it, but... Um,
1: No, they very wisely did the opposite of that.
0: Yeah, there isn't a a single way to train for a marathon. There are so many. And I started to look, and it's just overwhelming.
1: It really is, dude. There's entire magazines and websites dedicated to just training for a marathon. Not even just running, but like training for marathons. And it's like there is a lot to it.
0: Yeah, so it's it's easy to be intimidated by that or to go down the rabbit hole where – All of a sudden, six months later, you're still researching training methods and not just diving in. But, you know, find something that you think might work for you and then just get out there and give it a shot Right, and adjust as necessary would be uh, what I gathered from this.
1: That's That's great advice. I think also it's probably smart, as with just about anything these days, to do like just some preliminary research to see if there's anything you should look out for or try first. But just get a pair of shoes and go try running and see what happens.
0: Yeah, so you're, you're going to be running not not every day, depending on what training uh, regimen you undertake, but almost all of them that I saw features it, one time a week you're going to go on a run that's probably at least 15 miles.
1: Right, and you're not expected, like, the day you start training marathon or even the, the week you start training for a marathon to, to do a 15-mile run. Like, that's something you work up to, 15 or 20 or 26 is the max, that you're going to try to run to, and you work up to that over time. Like we should say, if you decide that you want to train for a marathon, you should start about eight to nine months. If you're starting from zero, you should start about eight to nine months to, to begin training for your first marathon because you are meant to slowly work your way up. If you try to do it, other than that, you're going to pay dearly in pain.
0: Have you ever heard of couch to 5K?
1: Yeah, I have. I don't know what it is though. I can guess. You're right. Guess.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead and guess first.
1: It is. um, You just jump off your couch and run a 5K, (laughs) and then you go back to your couch.
0: Yeah. Well, you're wrong. (laughs) No, it's exactly what you would think. It's it's a it's if you really do not run at all, it's a pretty good intro program to get you up to a 5K. Uh, I tried it for a little while when I was like, maybe I should run a 5K, -hmm. Um, and it it just starts out with like. You know, running and walking and then running a little bit more and walking less until you're running a 5K. But that's a pretty decent way to start. Um, but some people right out of the gate are like, no, you know what? I don't want to run a 5K or a 10K. I want to run a marathon. Yeah. So you can do that. Um but, you know, you just have to, you, you're training your body to run for 26.2 miles. Which you're, there's people out there who are like, the. not only are you not supposed to do that, the
1: human body's not meant to run. We're supposed to walk. That's it. Yeah. This is totally unnatural. Most other people say that's not true. But 26.2 miles across the board, people say the average person can't just do that. You have to work up to it.
0: Yeah. So you're going to have that one weekly long run. You're going to be cross-training. Uh... On your days in between, which uh, keeps you in good shape, and you're just using—I think the whole point here is to use your muscles and your lungs in a different way.
1: Well, yeah, and you're also giving your the muscles you use to run a rest. You're you're working them out. You're keeping working them out, but you're you're taking a rest from running.
0: Yeah, although there will be a, a full rest day in there as well, um, yeah. where you're. And we'll, we'll talk about the muscles and how they regenerate here in a minute. Um, but then you've also got your speed work or interval training or the greatest word ever, fartlek running.
1: Right. Which <laughs> I was like, what, what is that? And then I saw, <laughs> oh, it's Swedish. Okay.
0: Yeah, Swedish for speed play. and They're so uh,
1: innocent, the Swedes. <laughs> I know. And so good looking. Yeah.
0: Um, but interval training, that's when you're doing uh, – Things like you're working out different muscles, like by sprinting in spurts, uh, or you know, running real fast, then slowing down, and it's just it's just working out different parts of the body.
1: Yeah, and again, we'll we'll talk about why you would want to do that, but um, that is definitely part of marathon training. And again. As Chuck said, this is not meant to be your how-to guide to marathon training. Nope. Just listen to this, and if it gets you like jazz, then maybe you should go try to learn how to train for a marathon. But that's not what we're doing right here.
0: No, and the other really helpful thing that it said in here was that, like, what is your goal here? You need to figure that out. Are you trying to be competitive? Are you trying to just finish the race? Or Do you have a time goal in mind? Um do you want to like walk part of it? Like just figure out what your goal is here. Mm-hmm. And it it early on it's probably just like, I just want to go out there and finish this thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people their first goal is probably ninety-nine percent of first time marathoners is just to finish, you know?
0: Yeah. Without pooping yourself.
1: <laughs> the uh yeah, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um the one one of the things about marathoning is and everyone who uh, is friends or a relative of somebody who marathons uh, knows, is it, it it can become something of an obsession. And one way that you can Very become... Very selfish. <laughs> be, right. <laughs> one way you can become obsessed with marathoning is by keeping a training journal, which most most training regimens encourage. Um, and there's a, there's a number of reasons you would want to keep this. So a training journal just basically is where you log your data from a run, whether it's like um, how your aches and pains were, what your heart rate was, if you keep up with that, which of your shoes you were wearing, how much sleep you got the night before, what the weather was like, uh, what your weight was, all this different stuff. You can log all that down. And over time, you can start to find patterns in that data. And you can see, well, oh, actually, my orange shoes... I do way better in those than my blue shoes, so I'm not going to wear my blue shoes anymore. Or I run really well if I've gotten five hours of sleep, but I run terribly at six and a half hours sleep. You can find patterns like that, and you can use it to kind of guide your training a little more. Plus, it's also a big motivator, too, because especially if, like, you say you're logging body weight or your time or whatever, you can actually see physically... In tangible form, your improvement over time, which can keep you going, you
0: know for sure,
1: so a trading journal is usually a pretty good idea, but it, it is kind of it encapsulates like the idea of really becoming very focused on on marathoning,
0: yeah, it's the same like if you're if you're trying to uh, keep up with your like food or calorie intake, like they say the best way to do that is is to journal about it or use one of the, the apps that helps you journal about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. Should we talk about muscles? Yes. So there are a couple of types of muscles, and I know we've talked about this before in something over the past 10 years, but I can't remember what. I don't either, man. But, but the twitch, the slow twitch and the fast twitch muscles.
1: And there's also, I saw, intermediate twitch, but we won't mention those. <laughs>
0: The muscle that dare not speak its name <laughs> right uh slow twitch muscles are important for marathoning because they are your uh, what you i guess you would call your endurance muscles uh, for endurance events mm-hmm. because the muscle fibers contract very slowly. Um, the fast twitch are for more like sprinting, but uh they do think that if you are like a top tier marathoner, you may actually have a physiological edge because you might have a larger proportion of slow-twitch muscles to fast-twitch.
1: Yeah, I saw that um, slow-twitch muscle, so that has way more myoglobin and mitochondria and capillaries, which means you get more oxygen and more oxygen-rich blood, and you have more um, oxygen conversion sites to, to convert energy into muscle movement right there in the muscle. So it's way better for long-distance endurance running. They'll have more slow twitch than fast twitch because over time, when you're working out, you tear your muscles. You pull them, you stretch them, you tear them. Yeah. And you you get stronger because your body repairs that muscle and it's stronger than it was before. That's how you gain muscle mass, right? Um, Apparently, with runners... Or with any athlete, but your body repairs it with the muscle that you need more. So, if you're doing long-distance running and you need more slow-twitch muscle, when you tear fast-twitch muscle, it it may be um, replaced with slow-twitch. It's called muscle fiber recruitment. So, yes, it would make total sense that long-distance runners have more slow-twitch than fast-twitch in their muscle fiber than the average person. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's they, pretty cool. Because they trained that way, and that's, their bodies yeah. have developed, have it, it, it fashioned itself to fit its training, fit their training.
0: Yeah, so the, kind of the point of that is, like, mm-hmm. even if you don't have a literal physiological advantage, uh, you can still train your body to, to become something different. Right. Uh, you may not win the Boston Marathon. You never know. But you might win your age group. Sure. Or place. Yep. Or finish. Finish. That would be my, my goal for sure. <laughs> uh, you're also, beyond your muscles, it is uh, obviously an aerobic exercise. Um, the oxygen feeds these muscles. Your heart uh, is, is supplying this oxygen in your lungs. And it's all just an amazing, and amazing uh, aerobic fitness routine that you're going through. But it takes time to get there. Like, you can't, like, just like your muscles can't take pounding the pavement for 10 miles on day one, your Mm -hmm. lungs are not going to be ready and your heart's not going to be ready for that either.
1: No, you just, you have to start out slow and know that you're going to work your way up.
0: This is when you you should come in with one of the famous Josh, like, rhyming lines. Oh. um, (laughs) Like, get in where you fit in.
1: (laughs) Start out slow.
0: Yeah? Yeah. So you can
1: go. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? That's all right. But with the, So with that oxygen thing, though, that w- I want to talk more about the slow-twitch muscles because I'm fascinated by them. Okay. The more oxygen you can train yourself to take in, mm-hmm. VO2, I think is what it is, the volume of oxygen, um, the more that oxygen gets transported to your slow-twitch muscles. And again, there, oxygen and glucose is being put together to form ATP, which is the energy molecule that powers muscles, that makes them move. So the more glucose, and the more oxygen you have at the side of your muscles, the more your muscles are going to be able to contract. and the further the longer you're going to be able to keep running. Um, so it's just fascinating that like just training your lungs to take in and distribute more oxygen to your muscles, will allow you to run farther and that the muscles that you're tearing are being rebuilt to specialize in accepting that oxygen and using it more efficiently. So I, I feel like the fact that the body is capable of, of changing itself like this certainly suggests that we, it's, it's not like we're not designed to run. If yeah. we were designed not to run, sorry for using the word "design," but it, it, then your leg would just come right off if you tried to run <laughs> twenty-six miles. Something like that would happen. Yeah. Your muscles wouldn't become more efficient, at allowing you to run further.
0: Yeah, good point.
1: <clears throat> Very
0: good point. Um, it,
1: it didn't rhyme. I'm sorry, but that's okay. Right. It, it did get the point across.
0: Uh, so, if you're wondering about that heart rate, though, and what like how fast should my heart be beating, um, there is a formula. A man named Gordon Biersch, no, wait. Gordon Bloch.
1: Yes. That was it.
0: He, uh, he determined a formula for an ideal training heart rate, which is 220 minus your age. Yeah. And then you multiply that times 0. 0.6 and 0. 0.9. Why? And that, that would be your range of your heart rate, your beats per minute. Right. Uh, between those two numbers that you end up with uh, I, I, for your ideal heart rate for training.
1: I didn't see where I didn't see that anywhere else. I don't understand what that point six and point nine is. I couldn't find what that is.
0: What do you mean, what that is?
1: Like what? What is that? Where does that come from? What explains that? I want to
0: know. Oh, like how he developed the formula? <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you develop any formula. I, I, I plug guess. In, trial and error. Yeah, you plug in numbers until you land on. what what your formula is. It's like, oh, that guy died, so (laughs) 0.12 is too high. Let's try 0.11. Well, how about this then? Forget that. Throw it out the window and use the old-fashioned talk test. Uh, Ideally, if you're in your ideal training zone, Mm -hmm. you should be able to talk. Uh, If you're you're going at it too hard and you're doing that thing where you're bent over and someone's asking you a question and you hold up your hand and you're just shaking your head, like, give me a minute. That you're working too hard.
1: Well, this is so. This is while you're actually running, you should be able to talk.
0: Correct. Okay. Yeah. And if, and if you do the thing that I just described, <laughs> right, where you're shaking your head and you're waving your finger and going, no, 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 well, you can't even say that actually. <laughs> then that means you're working too hard. You need to be able to talk. Um, if you, if apparently, if you can sing, then you're not working hard enough. Right. So if you see a marathoner that's singing, that's singing Billy Joel, then, singing
1: Piano Man.
0: Yeah, then they're they're not they're doing it wrong.
1: No, no one wants to hear that. Who sings that song, Billy Joel? Well, then let him <laughs> sing it. He doesn't even want to sing it anymore. Uh, yeah, I'll bet he doesn't, which is sad because it's a pretty good song and it's about him, really.
0: <laughs> well, and and John and Davy and Paul. Well, yeah,
1: yeah, but I mean, <laughs> he's the piano man, right? Sure. It's not like a metaphor for for. I don't know, like God or something, right?
0: No. Okay. He's a piano man. John's a real estate novelist. Davy's still in the Navy. A real estate novelist? Yeah. He writes novels about real estate? No, I think he's a real estate guy who writes novels on the side. okay. He never had time for a wife. Boy,
1: Billy Joel <laughs> really was a poet.
0: But Davy's in the Navy. You know, he probably will be for
1: life. That's right. And America loves that song because it rhymes <laughs> like a mofo.
0: Like most great songs. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Visualization has such a problem with that dumb word. Uh, That's a big deal, not only for marathoning, but any time you have something big in your life that that you want to accomplish, you're supposed to visualize that. And look at yourself in your mind's eye crossing that finish line without poop running down your leg. Which we'll talk about in a little while. Uh, and there's a guy named Jeff Galloway who who calls it positive brainwashing, <clears throat> where you come up with some magic words mm-hmm. for yourself that can you can just repeat in the rhythm of your run. Um, he recommends relax, power, glide. Oh, that's good. But you can you can choose anything you want.
1: Yeah, um, like Metallica, corn husks.
0: you know what's so funny is Gravy. right before you said Metallica, I was thinking, exit light, enter night. No. Yeah. No. That's the worst Metallica song of all, too. Uh, is it? I don't know. I like the old stuff.
1: I do, too, but I'm saying, like, surely there was another song on that album that was way worse.
0: Oh, and there's been worse since then. I, I was just being coy.
1: Like Linda's Eyes? Come on.
0: I, I don't even know that song. I
1: just made it up. <laughs> it sounds like it'd be pretty
0: bad, though. Uh, should we talk about The Runner's High? Should we take a break before we do? Oh, jeez. I was on a podcast high.
1: Uh, yeah, well, let's leave them hanging because everybody wants to know. Everyone tuned in just to hear about the runner's high, and we're going to make you wait a little longer. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. All right, Chuck. We can't wait any longer. We got to talk about the runner's high. Have, I've have always you, heard about this. I was going to say, have you ever gotten it? But you haven't. I know if you if you aren't a runner, I've never gotten it either. No. Apparently, the runner's high kicks in. From what studies show, it does exist. By the way, there's a lot of back and forth about whether it exists or not. But what I saw, you need to run at about a six out of ten level of exertion for two hours basically nonstop at about the same pace in a rhythmic motion, that's where you're likeliest to experience a runner's high. I've never done that in my life and probably never will, so I'll never get to experience a runner's high, Chuck.
0: Yeah, I thought it was two minutes, and so I just got discouraged (laughs) every time. (laughs)
1: Well, that's the funny thing about it is a lot of people do run because they want to see what a runner's high is like, and it's like, well, maybe you'll find out in five years.
0: Yeah, so here's what a runner's high is um and then we'll talk about what it may or may not be but that's the state where you're running and you're you know you may be laboring and it may be tough and then you reach a point where it's just like everything clicks in mm-hmm. you're you got that even stride your body feels great your breathing is steady the rhythm relax power glide yeah it's gravy. all happening and you get this state of like euphoria almost and they even describe sometimes like a meditative loss of time can happen.
1: Yeah, I saw also that um, it's it's like uh, you feel like you can just keep keep running forever. Yeah. You feel so good. And the, the apparently for a long time everybody was like, well, it's clearly endorphins. Endorphins are great chemicals that right. we know your body releases when you exercise but they did a little further study and said endorphins are actually too big to cross the the blood brain barrier in a very short time so it's probably not endorphins because yeah. it clearly affects your your mood so there's something that's affecting the brain Uh, And they think that, yes, your body does release endorphins when you exercise, but they go directly to receptor sites in your muscles to kind of dampen the pain. Yeah. What they think the runner's high is is uh, cannabinoids, specifically uh, anatomide or anatomide.
0: Yeah, Georgia Tech, our very own Georgia Tech and uh, Cal Irvine, they did a joint study, and they said that if you exercise for long enough, you can produce this, uh, what is it, anatomide, anatomide? Either one. And it is in fact a, a cannabinoid not unlike THC. Yeah, I mean exactly. Like well THC is a
1: cannabinoid
0: too, right? Yeah, yeah, but the feeling that you get.
1: Right. So since it's the cannabinoid receptor that's being activated, this this the feeling would be kinda similar to it. But I'm I'm guessing you don't I, I don't know, maybe you do just kinda get laughy or whatever. Maybe paranoid.
0: How about this? I want to hear from someone who's experienced a runner's high for sure. Yeah. Uh, who has also had some experience with marijuana. Oh, hey, great. And I would like to know how they compare.
1: If we need a control group, somebody who's had a runner's high that has never touched pot. and mm-hmm. we, We're going to compare your descriptions okay. on the podcast. Oh, my God, I'm so excited. <laughs> I
0: and <feel> then, like <laughs> we just need to hear from someone who just smokes pot all the time and has never run. <laughs> right. I don't want to see what their experience I is. I feel
1: like we hear from them every
0: week. <laughs> I do too.
1: As listener mail. Yeah. Uh, okay, so um, the runner's high is probably pot. Yes. Is basically the, <laughs> the physiological explanation of it. Yeah. But the weird thing is, is again, it's not like, We've we've not either. We don't know enough about it to say this is exactly what you need to do, or it is elusive for some reason that we've never figured out. But it's not like you are going to get a runner's high every time, and some people never get a runner's high. Some people get them infrequently. Um, it's it's just kind of like this elusive dream that that runners love to to work toward, but don't necessarily ever attain.
0: You know, I mean, marathoning is impressive, but the people who really like or amaze me, are the, I don't even know what you call it. There's a word for it. The ultra, ultra racing, what's it called? Ultra thons. Really? Yes. Is that the name?
1: Yeah, ultra marathon, ultra thon. And how long are those? All right. Do you know? So some of them are up to like 150 miles or longer. (sighs) They'll, They'll be like overnight. Like you run for like 24 straight hours. I've got one. I got a couple for you.
0: Yeah, One I didn't look guy, into this because it uh, scares me.
1: So ultra ultra thons or ultra marathons, they probably deserve their own, maybe like um, short stuff episode. To tell you the truth, ooh. But there's a guy named Dean Karnazes. He ran fifty marathons in fifty days in fifty states once. What? Yeah. There's another guy named Scott Jurek. He's an ultra marathoner, but he wanted to show off. He set a record. He ran the Appalachian Trail in 46 days. Ran it. Ran the Appalachian Trail in 46 days. Something that frequently takes people six months if they're, like, trying to go at a steady clip. He ran in 46 days.
0: Now, I like that because I, uh, for some reason, like, road racing just seems boring to me, but I have had friends. In fact, my old friend James from New Jersey is a, a trail runner. Mhm. That always seems kind of cool to me cuz I'm into the woods and nature and Sure. It's it's hardcore stuff, but I've always thought kind of like mountain biking uh greater than street biking. Yeah, yeah. Or road I'm, biking. I'm
1: well, then there's another ultrathon that you would like um I can't remember the name of it, but it starts in Death Valley. Oh
0: yeah, I've heard of this one.
1: And then it ends on a mountain top and you run it in about 24 hours, I've seen.
0: Man, those people are there's something psychological going on there, too.
1: Yeah. Well, that's another thing. Is like, you know, everybody's heard that great Iron Maiden song, The Loneliness of a Long-Distance Runner. Sure. That's real. Like, that's a real thing. that To stave off boredom and your body just being like, dude, let's go get an apple fritter. What are you doing? <laughs> that's, that's like a real hard thing to deal with that yeah. you have to, like, stave off for hours on end and keep up a pace to, to try to finish the marathon. Yeah. I'm on an apple fritter kick big time right now.
0: Oh, eating them? Yeah,
1: and wanting to eat them when I'm not eating them.
0: <laughs> uh all right, so you've got your runner's high, which is the the positive side of things. You have the other side of that which uh is called hitting the wall. Yeah. And that happens um I don't think it happens like to everyone all the time, but generally in like the 17 to 21 mile point, mm-hmm. your brain is it says and your body are like, "What are you doing yeah you 're not supposed to run this far, and you hit a figurative wall where fatigue sets in such that you may i mean it depends on who you are, you may not finish, you may collapse in a heap and you 're done right when you hit that wall, and you're all of a sudden you 're in an ambulance <laughs> um, but like for real yeah yeah seriously i'm not i'm not kidding around um and it 's a serious thing, but what what 's happening there is your body. Is literally out of fuel.
1: It's yeah, done. That's exactly right. That's perfectly put.
0: Because to run a marathon or to run any race, but especially a marathon, you have to have a tremendous amount of stored energy in your body.
1: Yeah, yeah. Remember when I said that? Like your your muscles use or your body uses um, glucose and oxygen to produce ATP, which is this energy molecule that uh-huh. your, your muscles use. Well, you get glucose from stores of glycogen, uh, which is basically just a, a little bit of glucose tucked away here or there, and you can build up like the glycog- glycogen in your body by eating a lot of carbs like the night before a race or something. Mm-hmm. Th- hitting a wall is where you've not only used up the glycogen that you, you have eaten— right mm-hmm. your body also deposits these little fatty fatty lipid deposits and it started to use up those emergency reserve stores and yeah. if you can't finish if you're being carted off in an ambulance you used up all the glycogen in your body you don't have any energy stores any longer that's that's what happens to some people from marathoning
0: yeah and part of the problem is those fatty acids those emergency reserves they release very very slowly mhm So if you're running a race, you you just basically can't withdraw from your uh, energy bank fast enough. Right. Uh, The ATM sort of shuts down, and you're you're done for the day.
1: Basically. And and some people will, you You know, fight through it. You can, but you're you're. It's probably far more responsible to eat like a, a gel pack, an energy pack, a little sugar pack, basically, or a banana, or an energy bar, or something like that. Because then you're keeping up the easily attainable, available stores of glycogen. Um, I, I just I don't understand how a, a somebody who is well trained in marathoning could hit the wall like that. It just seems like you would. You would know your energy stores better than that. So I don't know if that's amateurs that hit the wall, or or somebody that just didn't wasn't paying attention to their energy. I don't know, but it just seems weird to me that that somebody who knows what they're doing would have that happen to them.
0: I'd like to hear about that too, because I was just about to surmise, but I don't even I have no idea.
1: All right, I want to hear about hitting the wall too.
0: I mean, Especially I'm sure.
1: If you smoke pot every day and you hit the wall,
0: (laughs) what is that like? Uh, Or or play The Wall by Pink Floyd. (laughs) (laughs) No, no.
1: Just keep that all to yourself.
0: Uh, I'm sure a lot of times hitting the wall is maybe not enough experience and you have to rejigger your uh, training and, like, what you eat before and what you eat and drink during. But uh, it probably also happens on any given day. Conditions might be such that or maybe your body just doesn't react the way you, you usually count on it, you know?
1: I guess. I, I guess I, I can't help, though. We have to bring up that episode of The Office where they had the 5K. Oh, yeah. And Michael Scott thought that stood for 5,000 <laughs> miles. And he carbo loaded right before the race by eating like a giant styrofoam takeout thing of, of Alfredo.
0: Oh, man. So yeah. great. It really was great. So if you think about a marathon runner, you probably think, all right, if you're out there running 26.2 miles, you are the peak of health fitness and you will live forever, mm-hmm. um, there's still something called genetics, everybody, that are still in play no matter what you do. Uh, and that can lead to d- death. Uh, Jim Fix, very famously, very celebrated runner, died at 52. He wrote The Complete Book of Running. And he died in 1984 of uh, arteriosclerosis. While he was running, right? I think so. Yeah. Uh, and you don't even have to be, I mean, 52 is still pretty young, but sure. in 2007, a 28-year-old named Ryan Shea died, uh, and he was, in a, uh, he was competing at the Olympic marathon trials. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had an irregular heartbeat. Um, what happens when you run a marathon or doing any kind of intensive uh, physical training like this is your, your heart size can actually increase uh, because it needs more blood to pump, um, and that can lead to arrhythmia and heart failure,
1: Right. You also can drink too much water. Sure. And since you're sweating out salts and peeing out salts, because you do have to pee, um, you can actually affect the electrolyte balance in your body. And electrolytes are needed for um, electrical transmissions for your muscles, which you think, oh, okay, well, you can't run. But your heart's a muscle, too, so it can't beat right if it doesn't have the right electrical or electrolytes. Um, so there's something called... called um, hyponatremia. Yeah. Which is basically water toxicity, and it can lead to sudden cardiac arrest because your heart just stops getting the right electrical impulses.
0: Do you pee during a marathon?
1: Yeah, I I didn't see what you do when you have to pee during a marathon. I believe there's, like, porta-potties, like, everywhere. I'm sure. Right along the the route. But from what I understand, those are more for the diarrhea.
0: (laughs) Can we talk about diarrhea finally?
1: I, I think it's time.
0: I've seen some very, and we have all seen very famous images on on sports television mm-hmm. uh, of people that have lost their uh, control of their bowels during a, a, an event like this. <laughs> and they end up on TV. <laughs> they end up on TV. Uh, they're not exactly sure the single cause or if there is a single cause of runner's diarrhea but they think it could be everything from uh, decreased blood flow to the intestines to uh, changes in your hormones jiggling to just good old fashioned jiggling of your organs,
1: yeah, but it is a thing it's called runner's diarrhea,
0: stress anxiety yep that could that could contribute for sure
1: yeah um it can it could also be like if you eat something weird that you're not used to eating, that could be a problem eating high fiber foods. Um, sugar alcohols can make you poop even normally, but if you're running around, um, that can be a a big problem too.
0: Yeah. So they, I mean, they recommend to, for the day or two before you run a marathon, like avoid those high fiber things. Mm -hmm. Um, don't like drink a bunch of caffeine, uh, the day of the race maybe, Mm -hmm. um, maybe a few, uh, three to six hours before. Uh, don't eat at all.
1: Right. But again, you don't want to hit the wall, so you need to, you need to juggle all this. You need to juggle your, um, chronic runner's diarrhea with the, your glycogen stores that you need to keep up with.
0: But don't juggle your organs.
1: But you can't help it when you're running, man. I remember, um, Peter Sagel wrote, you know, Peter Sagel from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? Mm-hmm. He's like a big time runner. He has a column in Runner's World. And one of them was just about runner's diarrhea and how everybody gets it. It's so weird.
0: Should we finish up with Ro- dear Rosie Ruiz?
1: One more thing before we finish up with her. We have to give a huge shout-out to Elud Kipchoge, who this, this month at the Berlin Marathon set a new world record of two, two hours, one minute, and 39 seconds. Wow. He beat beat the six-year-old record by a minute and 18 seconds. The six-year-old ran it in that? (laughs) (laughs) It's being compared to Wilt Wilt Chamberlain's 100-point game. It's that big. And um, the way that it really kind of sunk in for me was that it meant that he ran a four-minute, 38-second mile for 26 straight miles. Astounding. Yep. And they're they're like, this guy's gonna break the two hour mark. That's what he's been training for. Nike basically said, Hey man, we wanna basically throw everything we have at sports medicine wise at your training to see if we can get you down to two hours. Because he's like probably the the greatest marathoner who's ever lived. And um he said, All right, let's do it. So they've been working on it and everyone's expecting him to to break two hours in his career for sure.
0: Well, you know who's not the best marathoner in history? I do. Rosie Ruiz. She's one of the worst, actually, from what I understand. Yes. She is a woman who very famously on April 21st, 1980, at the age of 26, uh, got on a subway with a Boston Marathon runner's number, mm-hmm. exited the subway, and entered the race with about a half a mile to go. I saw a mile. Give her, give her a mile, man. <laughs> I saw a half mile. <laughs> So let's just say not far.
1: We'll say three-quarters of a
0: mile. And um, what well, was briefly crowned the winner, uh, the, the the female winner of the Boston Marathon, and she still maintains to this day that she ran that race despite really? mountains of evidence, um, although no physical evidence, uh, but mountains of anecdotal evidence from people mm-hmm. that were saying, like, she was on the subway with me, <laughs> and we walked off the subway together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw her jump back in the race and other people saying, she wasn't at this stop or this stop or this stop. Mm -hmm. Like, we never saw her, uh, and she cheated.
1: Yeah, and supposedly they looked into um, her New York City marathon finish and found that there were people who said that she was on the subway with them for that one too.
0: Yeah, which her story both times, I think, was that she said that she was injured and just wanted to go see the finish, and then when she got near the finish line, was like, "I'm an injured runner," and like people helped her back onto the, the thing. And the article I read from uh, this one guy—I can't remember his name—but he was some sort of official. Mm-hmm. His feeling is that she she didn't mean to win. Like that—that oh, really? that was an accident. I see, uh, and that she just wanted to cheat to the race and finish, and then all of a sudden they were like. You won, and she was like, "What?" <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> Which is pretty interesting. Sure. She's like, "Great!"
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a weird story. It is. Apparently, she was busted stealing sixty grand from a realty company she worked for. I think. uh
0: a couple of years later.
1: Yeah, a couple of years later. And then the year after that, she was busted for selling two keys of cocaine to an undercover detective. Yeah. Which is the last kind of person you want to sell two keys of cocaine to.
0: Yeah, for real. So she had a colorful life,
1: and I guess still does, huh? She's still around?
0: Yeah, I think she's in her 60s. Huh. Um, they've made it much harder to cheat uh, nowadays. There are uh, checkpoint, computer checkpoints, there are video checkpoints. Um, that are hidden and you don't know where they are. And right. all of this is in an effort to... Uh, and I think one of those cameras, in fact, is what uh, eventually captured the, the Boston bombing, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Oh, is that right?
0: I think so. That
1: totally makes sense. Wow. Yeah, that, so that one I wanted to point out, too. Um, remember how we said the Boston Marathon's been run every year since, I think, 1897, including the year after the bombing, too. So. yeah. Like, they, I, I remember in 2014 when they had it again after the year after the bombing, they were like, you know, this is a big deal. And I didn't understand quite why it was a big deal. I thought it was strictly because they were coming back from the bombing. They were also saying, like, we're not about to miss a year because of those terrorist jerks. Boston we're, Strong. We're going to keep a, yeah, for sure.
0: I want to see that movie uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal which one it's uh it? it's the one where he plays the guy who very had that very cheese gruesome, famous picture. He lost his legs in the bombing, uh-huh, and uh they made a movie about his life.
1: Oh, I thought it was like Mark Wahlberg was in that movie is it is there another the, one that he yeah. was in
0: <laughs> He was okay. in another one I think he was I mean it's Marky Mark, so he was the guy that saved the day. I think he was one of the I got gotcha. the, the, the cops chasing him down or a special investigator or something I don't know yeah. Gotcha.
1: I think you're probably right. I don't think we need to even see that movie to know that's exactly what it is. (laughs) I love Marky Mark, though. Sure, man. How do you not? Has a hamburger place. Does he? Yeah, Wahlburgers. Oh, yeah, that's right. So uh, you got anything more on Wahlburgers? Nope. All right, neither do I. Which means if you want to know more about marathons, go find out about how to train for a marathon and get out there and do it if this floats your boat. Um, And since I said that, it's time for listener mail.
0: Yeah, actually, no listener mail today. What we're going to do is something we almost never do, and that is plug our stuff and ask for your support. Uh, people are always writing in saying, what can we do? It's a free show. Mm-hmm. We love Stuff You Should Know. How can we support you guys? And Stuff You Should Know is doing great, everyone, so continue to listen to that. But we have our own solo ventures, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it it's hard to get a podcast off the ground these days, even if you're... Big uh, hotshots like us. <laughs> so, I have a show called Movie Crush, mm-hmm. where in uh, once a week I sit down with someone in the entertainment industry—from a musician to an author to a writer, director, or an actor, or comedian or podcaster—and mm-hmm. talk to them about their all-time favorite movie, and their life, and how movies have influenced their life and career. And then on Mondays we release uh, mini episodes called Mini Crushes with uh, producer Noel, where we just kind of shoot the S and uh, shoot the breeze about movies and what we're watching, and are very interactive with a lot of uh, people on Facebook, and we do polls and listener questions and certain segments, and it's a lot of fun. So subscribing to Movie Crush is a big, big way to help out Chuck, and you have a little something special coming out soon, too.
1: I do. It's coming out, and Movie Crush is wonderful, by the way. I can attest to that. Um, I have something coming out called The End of the World with Josh Clark. And it explores this idea that we have a lot of um, things coming down the pike, something called existential risks that are big enough and threatening enough and menacing enough that they could actually wipe the human race out of existence. And you might think like, well, yeah, there's climate change, or yeah, there's nuclear war. Those things don't even register on the map of existential risks. These are brand new things that we're not used to and we're not equipped to deal with at this point and we suddenly have to figure out how to handle them exactly correctly in the next 10, 20, 50, 100 years, or else we're probably going to accidentally wipe ourselves out as a race. It's really fascinating stuff, and sure, it's a little grim and it's dark, but I try to approach it scientifically and interestingly and fascinatingly and hopefully inspirationally because it really is... I saw um, one of the guys I interviewed said it was the moral question of our time, and he thinks that we will kind of, you know, rise to the occasion, and I hope that's the case, and hopefully this series helps with that. Well, so, I
0: can't wait.
1: I can't wait for it to be out either, man. I've been working on it for a while now.
0: <laughs> yeah, man, and uh, from what, I, for what I've heard so far, it's great. If your name on it, it's going to be great. Thanks. Uh, subscribing to Movie Crush, subscribing to The End of the World helps us out more than you know. Yeah. So uh, that is how you can help. And just keep on chugging along with Stuff You Should Know, too. We're not going anywhere.
1: Nope. And we've even added a new thing, Short Stuff, that comes out Wednesdays, too. So rejoice in all of the Stuff You Should (laughs) Know-ness.
0: And thanks for your support, everyone.
1: Yeah, for sure. After all these years. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can hang out with us on our website, stuffyoushouldknow.com, and you can find all our social links there. You can also send us an email. Send it off to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.